pitch explodes. What was your mindset when you stepped in the batter's box? Go yard. I mean, <laughs> I'm a pitcher. Why not swing as hard as I can? He was so worked up, he vomited on the sideline and then just kept on yelling at his teammates, Steve. Coach, <laughs> Minshew mania, the mustache sensation has taken over Pullman. Well, I don't know. I don't even think he had a mustache when I recruited him. I don't recall. Becoming a sideline reporter for ESPN didn't make me popular. This thing did. I've been getting offers for it all day long. All right, guys, here we go. We're going to have one team, one heartbeat. All right, now we're going to play for each other. We're going to have each other's back. We're going to win this ball game. One team, one heartbeat. Here we go. go. That might be the best sideline report in the history of sideline reports. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome into Sideline Pass Podcast. Molly McGrath here with Chris Budden and Allison Williams, and we are getting well into December, and we have uh, conference championship games this upcoming weekend. We're going to do a preview of all of those games and our experiences of covering all of those teams. We've seen um, between the three of us, every single team playing just about. We're also going to have Heather Dinich on the show, and she's going to talk to us about the college football playoff and what she thinks ahead of Selection Sunday. But first things first, let's talk about bowl season coming up because, Chris, you uh, were scheduled to cover the very first bowl game of 2020, and lo and behold, in true 2020 fashion, that game has been canceled. Um, Tell us kind of what you know about the Frisco Bowl and how that's all kind of like, I don't know, unfolded. Yeah, it was a huge bummer because it is less than a mile from my house. And so I've done all of the Frisco Bulls uh, in the last four years. And I was excited to see SMU again. And in true 2020 fashion, I found out on Twitter. Uh, I found out on Twitter that SMU had pulled out that they couldn't play because of COVID numbers. And then it was up in the air what was going to happen because bowl season's also unique because there are other games this weekend. There are championship games and then there are regular season games. So it's not like you could just ask somebody else. And if teams that weren't planning on playing in a bowl, like they've already gone home. So woke up this morning to the news that the Frisco Bowl was canceled. I was shocked that it was SMU because they have been so strict all year. They had had, I think, three positive cases the entire year. And then um, just too much contact tracing. They didn't have enough numbers. So it was supposed to be uh, SMU versus UT San Antonio. And so UTSA has now accepted a bid to the First Responders Bowl, which is in Dallas on the 26th. So a bummer. Um, It's game number four of mine. That's five. I've I've lost track at this point. That has been uh, canceled. But the good news is, is I get to watch a lot of football this weekend because the game was at four o'clock right during the ACC championship and the SEC championship. And I was supposed to do the game with Mike Golick Jr. And we were like, somehow you weaseled your way out of this. So now you can go watch Notre Dame play. You go cheer on his fighting Irish. Yeah. So I'm curious what's going to happen this bowl season because as we've seen throughout 2020, everything is so different this year. And before... If you got invited to a bowl game, you went. But the thing about bowl games is they're a reward. This is the reward for a winning season, um, a hard-fought season. It's a celebratory time. It's fun. They do big events. They have parties. They have outings. It's a really fun game, regardless of what bowl you go to. All that is not going to happen this year. You can't be having these big 
events um, and festivities away from the bowl games. So my question is, how much of a reward is it this year? And the yeah. demands that are on teams this year with the, the testing and the protocols and the restrictions. And I just wonder, after a season that I think has really worn on teams mentally and physically, how many teams that are able or eligible, whatever eligible means this year, or so I guess are selected to go to bowl games, will accept and I wouldn't be surprised if we hear of a lot of teams just straight up declining. I know one coach in the SEC um, said I would let my team vote because I don't know if after everything we've been through this year, if we really need to be going to a bowl game. So I'm just kind of curious your thoughts, uh, both of you, as to what you think teams will do and, and how different a bowl experience will be this year. Well, that's what Jeff Halfley at Boston College did is he had his team vote and he had his team caption team captains and the leadership council get together and basically come to a decision. So it, it seemed as though it was the player's decision whether or not they wanted to play in a bowl game, especially the seniors like that's. The, a bowl game is usually a prize for the seniors. It's a trip to be able to go out with your friends to a cool different city and have that last experience together. And I agree with you, Allison. It's it's not as much of a reward this year. It, it's a penalty in some ways. If a team has been playing, you know, a grueling season like the ACC, um, you know, they've been playing for a long time and they had that extended off season as well. And Teams like Boston College, I think all year, all season, they had maybe one positive COVID test at the very end of the season. So they were so diligent. And these kids were essentially, you know, locked up in their rooms and only went to the football field and back. Um, so Jeff Halfley and his leadership council decided that it was in their best interest to just call it and give the seniors and the players time off to be with their families and enjoy Christmas. And I don't fault them for that. I'm, I'm bummed because I'm a Boston College fan. I would have loved to have seen them in a bowl game. Um, and I think that the future is really bright for that program. But it also shows how in touch with his players Jeff Halfley is. So I think that's something we may see more and more. I think it just depends on the program. You know, like, A, you know, is it a power five versus a group of five. Like, I don't think UTSA was going to turn down a chance to play on ESPN for those teams or Kent state or people in the Mac or, um, but I think I agree with like being able to vote and say, I don't want to play. I just hope that they do that before the bowl selection. Like if you don't want to play and you want to go and spend Christmas with your family, that's fine. Don't wait and see how good of a bowl you're going to get. And then like if you're going somewhere warm, then we're in. Yeah. But if you're in Idaho, we're out. Like that type of thing. I agree with that. I feel like you're all in or you're not. I mean, like TCU, I wouldn't imagine would decline a bowl game. It's the whole reason they've played all season to get to 500. And the players that I talked to there said, you know, th this is our goal. So I, I think it just depends on the kind of program, how rigorous your protocols have been. Like Boston Colleges was a lot and it proved that it worked. But I've seen other schools like they are allowed to see their families and stuff. So I think it just kind of depends on where you are in the country uh, and how your season's gone as a whole. Yeah, I could see an uh, I could see a trend too where Big Ten and Pac twelve teams are more inclined to accept just because they played fewer games and they do want 
that extra time together. The SEC players I talk to, um, they're 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 worn down. Like yeah. it's been a long season. It was a long, you know, fall camp leading up to it, and then you you have these non-bye weeks that become bye weeks because of postponements and stuff. And um, I think just physically and mentally, the 10 games that they, most of them played um, with the longer training camp, I think it's just been a lot. So I wouldn't be surprised if more Pac-12 and Big 10 teams accept just because they haven't had the schedule and um, haven't had the wear and tear that some of the SEC and ACC teams, but it's going to be interesting because I hadn't thought about that. Like the fact that the fun is going to be gone. I remember when I did Miami Louisville at the beginning of the season, coach Diaz said the fun got taken away in the summer, that the things we do that we bond and we enjoy each other and we laugh and we cut loose. We couldn't do any of that stuff. And the fun has been missing from well, pretty much everything since March, but especially for those bowl games. So it will be interesting to kind of see what teams do. Yeah, just like the epitome of this past year of 2020. It's like such a slog just to get through it. And I think you make a really good point, Allison. I think we're going to see ACC and SEC teams that have been beating up on each other for months and started their seasons earlier. I'm like, I think we could see some of them opting out, especially a, a I don't know, a league like the SEC, those guys are so beaten up. Like, I could see that. But the Pac-12, you look at Pac-12 records, these teams have played like four or five games. They probably want to get one more in to make this worth it. You know what I mean? To put something on tape. And so I don't I don't blame them. Um, I don't blame the teams that want to opt out. Like, we are in a pandemic. And I don't blame the teams that want to keep going and are going to keep their uh, players maybe away from their families for a little bit longer. So that'll be really interesting um, to see how that unfolds. Um, Let's transition to some of the conference championship games this weekend. And Allison, you just covered USC and UCLA. Uh, That was a really, really exciting game. Oh, my gosh. First of all, what was it like doing a game in the state of California? Cause there's so much going on about what's going to happen with the Rose bowl. Um, I'm just interested in kind of like what you saw, how things are more strict in certain counties and certain places in California. Yeah. I mean, LA County is under a curfew. So I live in San Diego County. I drew, drove up the day of the game and left right after. So I wasn't in LA very much. Um, they are super strict at the Rose Bowl with all of their, their safety protocol and all that, which is fine. Nobody in the stadium, which was so bizarre. It was back to like that Navy BYU game I did at the beginning of the year. Um, So yeah, there was, there's definitely like, it it almost feels, I don't know, like you're like, you're living in this like contradiction because here you are where you're in a place where everything's shut down and it's like, you can't go to eat anywhere. You can't get your hair done. You can't get your nails done, but then we can get 150 guys out on a football field and the stadium and play games. So, you know what I mean? It's just, it's a little weird, like how you justify that to people who are told like they can't um, continue with their livelihood because we're in a pandemic and you know, it's a health and safety issue. Um, but then we can play football here. So it's, it's a little odd and I'm, I'm glad they found a way to play football and obviously they're testing every day and they're, they're very, um, stringent. I will say like, it, it is interesting when you, um, cover certain teams and conferences and like half the coaches have masks on and half don't, and they're like around their chin and they're very lazy about it. in a lot of places like USC, UCLA, those masks never came down. Coaches wise, mm-hmm. I, I saw one that would occasionally take it out. Everybody else were like masked, double masked, like 
very, um, very diligent in that regard. But honestly, here's my thing. So I don't think USC is one of the top four teams in the country, but I don't know why Ohio State gets such a pass that the Pac-12 and USC doesn't. They had the same record. Ohio State's strength of record, strength of schedule is not very good. Their most impressive win is against Indiana. They're ranked four, yeah. you know, when we're taping this. And USC is 15. So it's crazy. It's crazy, right? And well, it just shows you, that as much as the, what's the, that? The playoff predictor. So they, they kept running it during, I think, the Florida LSU game. Like with USC's win, their their chances of making the playoff were like 50 percent and i'm like yeah. yeah over one game over ucla and now they're going to go play a conference championship not against the opponent that even won the other division yeah yeah it's very bizarre to me it just shows that there is carryover from last year as much as they want to say it's a new year and the slate is wiped clean it's not because that's the only reason other than the eye test that you have Ohio state that much further ahead of USC. So like, I get if you think they're better, but to have that big of a discrepancy, I think is very telling. Um, USC is, they find ways to win, man. Like Keaton Slovis is playing really well. Um, he Isn't didn't he have a little stud. Game. He is a set. And do you know what I love? I love his relationship with Graham Harrell. Like it was hard to even describe it. We did it a little bit in the game, but they are like, Oh my gosh, like Cheech and Chong. I don't know. They're so silly. <laughs> they're like, they're Graham Harrell's like, awesome too. He's he's 35 years old. Like he's literally Slovis's big brother, practically. Right. And yeah. Slovis kind of has this like, I don't want to say dorky, but like, you know, he's he's not this like super cocky, I'm a badass quarterback at USC. Like he's kind of a little like dorky, but I just freaking love those two. Um, and they obviously are completely in sync, which is really cool. I will say though, I think, I think UCLA, like, I think Tripp's got to go in there. He's got his guys. Um, they made some changes to the defensive staff that I think has helped. Um, as an arrow, it's amazing as a DC, but I think they finally have their guys and they have their weapons and their speedsters and uh, Felton is really dynamic. So I think, um, I think they are definitely trending in the right direction, but I just, I don't understand quite. Um, I can't quite make out na- nationally why USC doesn't get a little more credit, especially when they're like a brand name school. Like you kind of expect it if it's, Poor Colorado, but yeah. it's freaking you. Like, but right. players. My frustration becomes like I, I just don't know. Even if Ohio State wins this weekend, if really they deserve it, because it shows Saturday in Gainesville that games matter, and the the ability of what Alabama did to go undefeated in an all SEC schedule, and if Notre Dame does the same, like that's hard to get your guys week. Yeah, at Florida. Week after we yeah are you but, on dan mullen's bandwagon where it's like well then we shouldn't have played the game we lose we i we're still gonna get in but yeah no <laughs> no no it, th- you guys are right i mean i think that the committee is going to argue eye test and this is something we can ask heather dinich when we speak to her in a little bit the committee is going to argue the eye test but i think the biggest problem with having a playoff committee is that there is human error and human bias. Like, obviously Mm -hmm. they just think that Ohio state is going to be a better team than USC because they have been in the past. Cause they expect them to be. So it's it's like, you expect 
Ohio State to come in and have success. And they have Justin Fields and, you know, they, they were a playoff team last year. So the expectation for Ohio State is different than the expectation for USC coming into this year. So USC clinched the Pac-12 South with that game. They're playing in the Pac-12 championship. They're not playing uh, UW. They're going to end up playing Oregon because it's 2020. So they're playing a three and two Oregon team in the Pac-12 championship game this weekend. So that'll be really interesting to see. And we're finally getting that USC Oregon game. I think that's actually going to be a really good game. Um, But let's talk about, you know, since we don't think that the Pac-12 will get into the playoff, let's talk about a team we know is getting into the playoff. The most foolproof team in all of college football all season long has been Alabama. And Chris, you had a chance to cover them against Arkansas, a game that we knew was going to be a blowout. But, I mean, you look at Florida's loss to LSU and all of these games matter. So how did Nick Saban kind of get his guys ready for a game that anyone else would have like maybe called a, I don't know, a trap game or a game that they could have taken, not taken seriously? Yeah. So two things I learned this week about Saban is he finds a way for something to give his guys some, something to motivate them. And this week he had told his team, Hey, when I was in the NFL at Miami and I would get cut up of players, it would be highlight, highlight, highlight. I never knew what the score was and I never knew what the opponent was. So why would you want to go out and put anything on the field and anything on tape that was less than 100%? Because what if that's the highlight that ends up on someone else's reel? Uh, Which I thought was an interesting way. You know, I've never heard someone motivate their players that way. But then, so we do the pregame game day interview, and I I asked about the challenges of motivating your team for this game. And he says, well, you know, one of our goals is to to go undefeated in the SEC. This has never been done. We've never done a 10-game season, so we want to be the first. We're going to go undefeated 10-0 in the regular season. Cool. That's legit. They, They did it. I asked him about it after the game. Hey, coach, you know, you, you reached your goal of 10 and 0 in the regular season. It's never been done before. What it take to pull that off? Oh, well, you know, that's not really our goal. Our, our goal is to win next week in the SEC championship. And I'm like, there's always like, that was the goal. But now that's not the goal because now there's another goal. And I'm because the clock just hit zero. So now there's a new goal. Right. Yeah. So he's, you know, but, but that's why he's great and why yeah. his teams don't lose to Arkansas on a week that didn't matter. Yeah. That's very Belichickian of him. Like we're <laughs> on to Cincinnati. Um, it's funny, Chris, because you and I were texting throughout the week about Mac Jones. Speaking of stud quarterbacks, I absolutely love Mac Jones. He's like one of my favorite people to watch on the sidelines. And there's, there's nothing like, too interesting about him but he's really interesting and there's this like air of mystery and you and I were texting you were like how how do I tell stories about Mac Jones that haven't been told before and there actually was an article on ESPN.com today writer Hallie Grossman uh just had an article come out called Mac Jones is the most interesting man in college football which Mm -hmm. I was like wow maybe Chris inspired her um (laughs) what did you learn about Mac Jones that you thought was interesting oh yeah so it, it when you get a good amount of time with someone, you can have throwaway questions. So we got 30 minutes with Mac and our crew let me go first. And so I was like, I didn't feel rushed in five minutes to try and figure out everything. So I was like, I'm just going to ask random questions. What do people not know about you? And he was like, I don't like seafood. And I was like, okay, on to something else. And so I was, I wanted to know what is the picture on the lock screen of your phone? 
And he was like, oh, it's Conor McGregor holding up two belts. And I really love, you know, the way he's cocky and he's competitive, but he's confident. And I try and have that. And then it went into how he leads a prize fighter day and he has five goals, which is like hydration, mental, physical, kindness, and nutritional. And if he does those five, five days in a row, he knows he's ready for Saturday. And so then it kind of all played together. And then his teammates told me that he's the biggest trash talker on the team, which then is another way that he's like Conor McGregor. So it was like a throw. It was a question that he could have been like, oh, it's picture of my girlfriend. And it would have been a lame question. But we got a little bit of gold out of it. And then we did some fun stuff. You know, you, when you're preparing for a blowout, um, we tried to come up with as much content as we could. And his old Pop Warner team won the national championship this week. And his parents donate money to the Jacksonville team. And Mac had sent them a message. So we reached out and had the Pop Warner team send Mac a message like, good luck the rest of the season, roll tide. And so it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah, he's a lot different than I was expecting, but he is fun and cocky and confident and just very different than I was expecting. Um, I love covering him too. Real quick, one word answer. Chris, does Florida have a chance against Alabama? No chance. Molly? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> yeah, I agree. By the way, you two, what's up with this like side text combo you two have going on? <laughs> what was it? I was it wasn't that like... much of a side text. I think it was just about <laughs> Mac Jones. Like I was like yeah. obsessed with him this week. I was texting Chris, like, try to get good stuff on Mac Jones. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Hey, Molly, I should let you know I side texted Allison yesterday my notes about Oklahoma and Iowa yeah. State. So yeah, Molly. So you're not the only one with little side text action, okay? <laughs> there you go. I love it. We're all helping each other out. Okay, so we we think that. Florida has no chance against Alabama in the SEC championship game, right? Like yeah. Alabama is just so solid, so well-rounded and Florida's coming off of literally game of the year was them just throwing it all away. Literally. Literally. <laughs> on Saturday. That was so bad. Um, okay. But speaking of your side text, talking about the big 12 championship game, Allison, you're going to be there. Tell yeah. us uh, what you're looking forward to, what you think is going to happen in this game. I'm excited to see Iowa State this year. I had them last year in their bowl game and just really enjoyed covering Matt Campbell and, and Brock Purdy and that whole gang. So I'm um, excited to see just the differences and the improvement this year and to see this program get an opportunity to do something that it's never done before, which how often, you know, does that happen? And I love the matchup against, you know, Oklahoma, who's won like five in a row, big 12 championships. And then Iowa state is playing in their first ever. And then also um, curious to see the improvements for Oklahoma uh, from last time they played Iowa state when Iowa state won. And I think uh, Spencer Rattler is playing better. I think there's some weapons around him, some guys on defense, they got back that it made a big difference. Um, so I think it'll be a lot of fun. It's in Dallas. Um, I'm always curious how, teams like Iowa state respond on the big stage and the bright lights. I have a feeling their five-star culture will handle it very well, but we'll see if that gets the juices going, like the whole comments about the five-star culture versus, you know, the five-star players and all that. Um, so I think it'll be a lot of fun noon kickoff 11 local. Um, so yeah, hopefully you guys will all tune in. You two probably both know these teams better than I do. Cause you, am I haven't you had Oklahoma? 
So I did the Oklahoma-Iowa State game at the beginning of the season, and Iowa State beat Oklahoma for the first time in Ames since, like, 1962 or something. And it was a really emotional win for Matt Campbell. He looked like he was going to cry after the game. He's just – he's a reporter's dream after a big Mm -hmm. win. Like, if they win, I am so excited to watch your post-game interview because he's going to be – Cry. No. <laughs> you you need I to make him cry. Queso. <laughs> make sure you don't get hit by a cup of queso. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I'm super excited for that game. I'm definitely be watching that. Um, Big Ten Championship, speaking of Ohio State, is there any way they don't hang like 50 on Northwestern? Davises. Yeah. The, the fighting race Davises. I don't know. Uh, like I covered the fighting Reese Davises against Wisconsin. They're really good. Their defense is the heart of their team. Their defense is so good. Their offense is just okay. Like, I don't know if they have an offense to keep up with the caliber of offense that Ohio state has. So I don't really think it's like a fair opponent. So I think it's going to be lopsided and Ohio state's going to end up looking really good and getting into the playoff because of all of that. The only thing that I kind of wonder is like Ohio state has to prove something this week, you know, they belong there. I I think that they have to do a lot. So is that pressure too much for them? It'll be interesting um, how close four and five are in the standings, you know, because Texas A&M didn't get to play this week, so they can't really jump. But if, if you throw it all away and you look at the body of it, I think Ohio state has to, has to dominate this weekend and does that pressure to have to do that change a little for them? Yeah. And I think Northwestern, as much as you're right, Molly, like the defense is the heart of that team. I think the offense has to stay in the field because that's the only way they're going to prevent Ohio state from running up the score. So they have to be methodical and just call that game with time of possession in mind the entire time, because they're, you're right. Like Ohio state is going to be looking to score and they're going to go for the jugular and they're not going to take their foot off the gas. So I think, um, I think it's going to be key for Ramsey to just be really methodical and patient and not try and do too much and just uh, keep that offense on the field to keep Ohio state off of it. The other uh, championship game that I know we will all be watching is the ACC championship. I've had Clemson a couple times, Molly, I know you've had Notre Dame. Um, how much of a difference in the rematch will Trevor Lawrence make? the Tigers do you guys think everything I think it'll I I think there's I think there's no chance Clemson loses this game and I know that's like a really bold thing to say because Notre Dame is so good and so solid and Ian Book is the kind of quarterback who can will his team to win but Trevor Lawrence is the quarterback of their offense. James Skalski is the quarterback of their defense. I don't know if he's available for this game or not, but I, so I was going to cover Pitt at Clemson and that was the game that Skalski returned from um, after having a, you know, a minor surgery and he had some time off and he missed that Notre Dame game. And I talked to him ahead of that game. And he said that on the field at Notre Dame, as the fans were storming the field, he and Trevor Lawrence looked at each other and they both said, I really hope we get to see them again in the ACC championship game. And that was like the first thing they said to each other. And that is what they have been working towards and they are pissed off and they're embarrassed and they're not used to losing, you know? So I, I think that Trevor Lawrence is going to come out like 
crazy. And I think he's going to have a really good game and he'll need to. Um, but I think that Clemson wins this. I think you're right. And I was just looking um, when you said that at the line, they Clemson is a 10 and a half point favorite, which to me seems like a lot. Clemson's what? a 10 and a half point favorite. Yeah. Wow. wow. That is a lot because I mean, Notre Dame is talented. I don't, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a two touchdown game. No, I, they and I, Herbie, Herbie and Fowler are calling that game, right? Yeah, it yeah, will be twenty-one point game. It's gonna be blowout. Those poor guys. Um, I I'm with you though, Molly. If Skalski can't play, that to me is just as big as if Trevor Lawrence can't play because he's the quarterback that. of that defense. What's that? People don't talk about that when they talk <laughs> about the rematch. They're like, "Oh, Trevor's gonna be back." No, Skalski. That's huge. Too. They're missing some guys on defense up front too, but Skalski is is uh, the straw that stirs the drink for that uh, for that defense. And I think if he, like that's huge, so definitely something to keep your eye on as we get closer um, to that matchup. But it's going to be such a fun weekend. I'm excited. I, I I'm I'm so like I'm so proud of college football for getting this far. Mm-hmm. I really yeah. am. Like I give these guys all the freaking credit in the world because what we have asked of them over the last several months is unprecedented and they freaking did it. And congratulations to every freaking team that's playing on Saturday because you guys earned it. Yeah. It's crazy that we are almost at Christmas and there's still games being played. It's amazing. That's why none of my Christmas shopping is done. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And and (laughs) we have, we have bowl season to look ahead to. We have the college football playoff to look ahead to. And with that, we're going to bring in Heather Dinich and we're going to talk about different playoff scenarios, what she thinks of the latest rankings and who she thinks will be in. So here is Heather Dinich. We are so excited to now welcome in senior writer for ESPN, Heather Dinich. She is the go-to person for all things college football playoff. Uh, she has the inside scoop on what goes on with the committee and with the most recent rankings just being released. We can't wait to catch up with her and, and kind of hear too, Heather, like how you came to be on this beat because it's such a unique role within our company and such a valuable one. I, I, I want to hear about how that kind of became um, your role, but I, I want to start first with your reaction to the latest rankings. Obviously not a lot of changes at the top. Um, Iowa State, I'm curious, about because I've got them this weekend. They did move up a bit. Do you think that's positioning them at all to potentially get into the playoff or kind of your thoughts on how like that six, seven, eight, nine spot shaped up in this week's rankings? Yeah. So that was the most interesting section of the ranking, if you will. And to answer your question about Iowa State, I think they have a shot. The doors open a crack for them because if they beat a ranked top 10 Oklahoma team and they do it soundly, then that can impress the selection committee enough for them to move up over A&M. The question is, can they move into the top four? And I don't think so without Ohio State losing, certainly without Clemson losing. I think they need a lot of other dominoes to fall. But everybody has to remember that punctuating the resume with a conference title is important. It's not everything, but it's a piece of the puzzle, especially when the teams are comparable. So if there's a debate and somebody has a title, like Iowa State, and somebody doesn't, like A&M, that could matter. 
So I, I wanted to follow that up on AM because I'm here in Texas and, you know, there's been talk of no one's talking about them sitting there at number five. And you look at some possibilities. I'm curious your thoughts if Clemson goes out and, you know, beats Notre Dame by three touchdowns. How does that Notre Dame's win over Clemson earlier in the year, how does that change the opinion, you could say, without Trevor Lawrence out? Is that win is good? How do you think the conference would then evaluate Notre Dame? You know, I love that scenario because it's so ironic to me that Notre Dame is a member of the ACC this year, <laughs> historically, right? This is a historic <laughs> season for the Irish. And if that happens, then they're in the same place they always are as an independent, hoping that their resume is good enough without a conference title, right? And that's what it will all boil down to. And I think you make a great point because you raise the question of what that game looks like. It's not just everybody's just talking about, well, what if Notre Dame loses? They're in. Well, maybe, but if they get beat by three touchdowns, maybe not, right? It depends on who's sitting on the outside. And again, it goes back to, is there somebody else who has a conference title who they think is better? Uh, personally, I think Notre Dame would still be okay because they've had such a good season and the committee likes what they see from them. But we've also seen from them, and back to the original question about that six, you know, six, seven, eight, what's keeping the eight, the SEC so high is the eye test. And so to answer your question, you know, even without a title, are the Irish passing that eye test? And I, I think they are enough without that based on what we've seen from the committee to this point. We're going to get to the eye test because there is so much to debate about the eye test, especially as it pertains to teams like Ohio State. But I just want to stay on this Notre Dame-Clemson game because when you look at this weekend, that's definitely like one of the most competitive games this weekend um, with Notre Dame beating Clemson earlier in the season. If Clemson falls to Notre Dame for the second time, which personally I don't see happening, but if they do, is there a chance that the darlings of the ACC are left out of the playoff? Absolutely. And it's, I know Dabo Sweeney doesn't want to hear it because he's already <laughs> right. his case, right? <laughs> he's already out there lobbying just in case, but Look, it you know, two losses and you go back to what else do they have? And they have the win against a great Miami team. That counts, right? Miami was good this year. That means something. But beyond that, the only two teams that Clemson will have defeated over 500, I believe, are Pitt and Boston College. Mm. The problem, though, is that you can poke holes in every single other team like that. Florida, A&M, like Ohio State, you Ohio name State, it. yeah. All of them, right? Because you don't – and the other thing is that we don't have this year is those big-time non-conference matchups to help compensate for the lack of a conference title. So it's Except not like – Except the Sun Belt and the Big 12, which That's we'll get into later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, but there's no Clemson-Auburn to say, well, or, or you know – whatever it might be, no, no Clemson A&M, right? To say, well, hey, they got a good win here against an SEC team. So I, I have a hard time justifying a two-loss Clemson team, though, without an ACC title. With Trevor Lawrence in the lineup, you better win that game. Yeah, I also feel like if if you're Clemson and Notre Dame, like that kind of is a playoff game. So if you can't take care of business there, like really, why do you deserve to advance? 
is kind of my thought. Um, but I want to go to Ohio State because you mentioned them um, and the eye test, which it, it, this week was, I think, fascinating, too, that Florida didn't fall more. I mean, they only dropped a spot, which is super weird. Ohio State holds steady. And I just am curious what you're gathering as to why Ohio State is held so high you know, they've held on to that four spot and retained it, you know, despite not playing. Um, but a team like USC, who's also undefeated, um, can't crack the top 10. So, I, I mean, outside, is it just the eye test? Like, what are the arguments for such a large discrepancy between those two teams with the same record? Um, just kind of curious what you're hearing. Yeah, what they're seeing on film is probably the biggest difference. And they'll point out that USC is squeaking past its opponents and fortunate to beat teams, right? Whereas Ohio State in game control metric is much, much better. And with the exception of a close win against Indiana, um, has pretty much dominated its opponents for the bulk of the time. Plus, then you, you just go back to Justin Fields and all the playmakers he has around him and what they've seen on film. But what's interesting about Ohio State, and plus they also like the win against Indiana, but, you know, this is the crux of Greg Sankey and Dabo Sweeney's argument is that the more games you play, the more you risk. I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about six games. I think I looked it up yesterday, and if if Iowa State does beat Oklahoma, it will have won six straight games. That's what Ohio State's played all year. And that's Iowa State's winning streak, right? So the the fact that that hasn't bothered the committee to this point leads me to believe that Ohio State with a win stays right where they are and it doesn't doesn't change the picture, right? I think having the opportunity now to play in the Big Ten championship game makes Ohio State a totally different conversation. We have said all season that 2020 Dabo Sweeney is like so incredibly sassy. Can you imagine the press conference if they don't get in? <laughs> Actually, yes, I can. His his opening statement will be approximately 27 minutes long. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, we talk about the group of five and the Sun Belt playing week one and going three and three against the Big 12 and Louisiana beating Iowa State at home. Like we play these games for a reason. And when it's brought up to the committee, all these other factors come in. I'm curious for you if this season has shown that a group of five will never be able to get in if it stays at four. You know, I, I really hesitate to say never because I remember in the early, it was either first or second year of the playoff and Houston beat Oklahoma and Houston looked really good. And then they lost to Navy. They, they beat Louisville that year. And they had Lamar Jackson. Well, Lamar, this is Houston, right? So if you have that type of team that has the opportunity to knock off an Oklahoma and a Louisville, and the rest of the American Athletic Conference has some teams ranked, like Navy or Memphis, and you go undefeated against that schedule, that's a different story. And I like to remember people of that Because if Houston would have been able to beat Navy of all teams that year, right, and win in their own league, I think we have a different conversation about it. Now, would they have gotten in? I don't know the answer to that. But I certainly think that it would be an entirely different conversation than what we've had to this point about Group of Five. So uh, this committee has been – it's been an indictment on the Group of Five. I would agree with that 100%. For Cincinnati sitting there – 
between behind three two loss teams. Yeah, that's hard. How how do they justify that to Cincinnati fans? So part of what Gary Barta, the committee chair, said was, and this is plain and simple: we think Florida's better. They, you know, and. I get that, right? Maybe they are. Personally, if Cincinnati and Florida played today, I would pick Cincinnati. Because if an LSU team that looks like that can beat Florida, <laughs> then guess what? <laughs> so can right? the Bearcats, right? But here's the thing. I mean, and I give the committee credit for this because Cincinnati hasn't played since November 21st. They go back in their game film and they watch that Cincinnati against UCF game. And they say, oh, well, look, you know, they struggled in this game. You know, but I look at that game and I'm like, they went on the road against a UCF team that is a couple of plays away from being undefeated themselves and they won that game. So again, you know, it's different views, different ways of you look at it. And that's what happens when you get 13 people in a room. But a lot of it just boils down to, hey, we think these two lost teams are better. It's just so frustrating because it's what they think, but it's like, then let them play. Like, what do we actually know? And I was so hopeful that maybe there was a sliver of a chance that this year, given all the chaos and, and how unprecedented everything has been and, and how nimble teams have shown they can be and how they can maneuver and play different teams and reschedule and all this, that maybe, just maybe the playoff committee would say, okay, let's do eight. Let's actually get these teams on the field against one another because we don't have the data points to cross compare this year. You just don't. Um, not within the power five, at least. So outside the big 12 and those games. So I was, I mean, I knew it wasn't likely, but I thought maybe there was a chance that this year, um, did you ever think there was a chance that they would consider expanding to eight or were you like, no, there's no, there's no way. Well, before the PAC 12 started its season, commissioner Larry Scott actually got all 10 FBS commissioners and Jack Swarbrick to talk about it which I think is a small victory in itself. Now, he wanted it just for this season, sort of as an experiment because of the pandemic, right? And there was support for it, obviously, but not enough support. And during this, you would probably have to, it would probably have to be unanimous. But then fast forward to where we are now, and I thought Greg Sankey made a great point because he said, look, we're barely getting the games played that we have lined up. If you expand the playoff, you're increasing the yeah. difficulty of getting teams out there, you know? So I, I see it and it's, you know, easy to look back and say it should have, you know, this was the year to do it. But if you could see to where we are now, it's just really hard getting everybody's get fingers crossed. They play the Rose Bowl, <laughs> right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure when Larry Scott was arguing that and having them have those conversations in the beginning of the season, he didn't anticipate all of the issues that the Pac-12 would have in playing games. We've seen a ton of that. Um, is there any chance, as someone who lives in Seattle and who's in Pac-12 country, is there any chance a Pac-12 team gets in, like if USC handily beats Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game? Like, What needs to happen for a Pac-12 team to be taken seriously this year? You know, Molly, I think they at least consider the Pac-12 champion because that's what they do. They'll talk about it, but then they'll very quickly dismiss it because because Oregon's not ranked. You know, there's no wins against ranked opponents in there. And to go from number 13 into the top four, I just think it's too – I don't know what the word is, you know, unrealistic of a a jump to make. They don't think they're even a top 10 team right now. So I don't think an unranked Oregon 
team would change that. But USC is just not a great team. The this is the Pac-12's problem. They have a lot I of know. teams, but not great. It fascinates me just how how much you fit in your brain. Like you know everyone's schedule and everyone's wins <laughs> and losses, and where everyone was ranked every different week. Uh, it's part of the fascinating part of your job. I'm curious when this started. Four to five years ago, like how how did this become your beat covering the playoff committee? So I was at the very last BCS national championship game between Florida State and Auburn. And it was at the Rose Bowl. And I pulled my editor aside. I've been, this is my 13th season with ESPN. And I started covering the ACC and I pulled my editor aside and I said, I love what I'm doing. I love my job but is there something else that I can do? <laughs> and, you know, we talked about it. He said, well, you know, the, you know, the playoffs starting, why don't you come to the playoff for us? And nobody knew what that meant. None of us, nobody. And I'll never forget that season because even the college football playoff didn't know how it was going to unfold. And so everyone was learning as it went along. Remember TCU went from three to six. Everybody's like, what? (laughs) And so now we see Florida sitting there with two losses. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's this election committee. You know, now everybody's kind of got a feel for it. So that's how it happened. And um, it's just been, it's really, it's been really great because it's a whole different world of reporting because so much of it is the commissioners, the committee members. I mean, Condoleezza Rice was on the first selection committee, you know? And I remember walking into that room and seeing her and it was just like power. You know, there was power. Tom Osborne was at that table, Barry Alvarez, Tyrone Willingham. And it was just like these amazing brains focused on football. And I was like, this is different than anything I've ever seen in any sport. And it's just been, it's been really fun and um, different to cover from the reporter's perspective. I'm a huge fan of Conti. So I would have been like completely starstruck seeing her in person as well. It's almost like you're covering politics in a sense, not just because of people like Condoleezza Rice, but because you're covering people and the decisions and, you know, the rankings that human beings are making. I'm, I'm curious, like, what's your day-to-day involvement like with the committee? How much contact do you have with them? Like, how do you navigate all of that as a reporter and someone who wants to be unbiased, but someone who's also partnered with them as well? Like, how does that work? Uh, well, most of it during the season is all through committee chair Gary Barta. And it's, you know, it's all on the record. and. I will never put a committee member in an awkward cho- in an awkward position by asking them something that I know they can't talk about. I mean, the sanctity of what goes on in that room is important, but it's also important for me to be able to talk to them before and after the season to say, why did you do this? Explain it. And, and Gary, you know, and I talked to Bill Hancock about some things like that too. Um, but I try to remind people all the time that, I don't necessarily agree with some of the things they do. I I can't always explain what they do. You know, I can tell you how they came to the decision of putting Florida where they did, but I would have had Cincinnati higher, you know? So, um, and and the funny thing is, is, I'm sorry, hold on. The the funny thing is, Twitter, Twitter just, it's just blows up. And whenever the rankings come out, like, (laughs) 
I, I get it. I get the brunt of it, you know? Like, why do they do this? Why do they do that? And I'm like, because it's 13 people and they do whatever the hell they want. I don't know what you <laughs> I was going to ask you that. I'm like, I bet people just go crazy on you because you're so much of the face of the explanation. Yeah. And I'm sure they just fire on you. You're like, dude, I don't vote. Yeah, <laughs> not I like don't that. vote. No, it's all Heather did. She's part of the problem. What? I just sit at my desk. I got three kids. Leave me alone. I got no problem. Okay, so along those lines, how different has this year been for you because of the restrictions? Like, you can't travel to Dallas and be there when the committee um, gets together every week and votes. And then you're you've got your three boys at home doing school virtually. So, what have been the challenges uh, that 2020 has presented you? Oh, it's crazy. I've done more TV from home this year than ever. Usually during the season, I fly up to ESPN every weekend to do a studio show and sports center and stuff like that. And I've been here and throughout the week I've been doing, you know, get up and, and sports center hits and stuff. And meanwhile, there are four people uh, just like <laughs> right out there, over there, small people, a big person, everybody's yelling at each other, you know, and it's just like, and, and they're, they're, they've actually been really, really good at it. And I'm, I'm lucky because my kids are at a good age where they know, you know, okay, quiet guys, mommy's on TV. And every now and then, you know, something might happen, but knock on wood more often than not, everything's been fine, but it's just like, you hold your breath every to every time somebody's in your ear and they're like okay stand by and I'm like you know I'm on <laughs> like trying to think what am I going to say and I remember the one time on I was I was doing the six o'clock sports center and my eight-year-old I just right up to the door mama 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 and I didn't think the one time I didn't think anybody heard it and then Kevin Nagani the next day was like hey you know you played a really cool you know you didn't even flinch and I was like oh you heard that <laughs> I was going to ask what you bribe your kids to keep them quiet. Like my heart starts racing when we're shooting a podcast and I'm in my closet because I'm afraid someone's going to come in and like, we tape this. Like I can't imagine every morning on get up and sports center being like one of those dang little ones is going to walk through the door. Did you have any idea when you started this, how much TV you would do? No. You mean the playoff gig? Yeah. No, this, yeah, the playoff gig has changed the the TV stuff so much, and it's been great, and I tell you what, I admire you all so much, because I did not go to school for broadcast journalism, I went for print, and so, you know, to stand in front of a camera with no, essentially nobody telling you what to do, <laughs> you know, like six years ago, I'll never forget it, because I was on with Linda Cohn, I was on the Sports Center set, I grew up watching Linda Cohn. I'm standing there with a notebook, like shaking, you know, and she comes, you know, she asked me a question and I got through the question and I'll never forget this. I went backstage and I texted my babysitter at home here in Maryland. I was like, how did I do? And she said, well, your mic broke and your lipstick was too bright. But other than that, it was great. I was like, oh Thanks for babysitter. the honesty. We talk about the lipstick all the time. Mom, you got to wear more lipstick, more blush. Yeah. More blush, more lipstick. I didn't like that color. Your lighting wasn't good. I'm like, did you hear what I said? <laughs> yeah, it's the content of what I'm saying that actually matters. Um, so we're we're doing this over Zoom, and it's going to just be a podcast, so no one gets to see. But behind you, I see some lights and like a little setup. Like, what is the at home setup that you have in 2020? Because people don't realize a lot of it's on a phone or an iPad. Like, how do you patch into Sports Center and get up and all that stuff daily? 
Yeah, so I upgraded this year from the iPhone to the iPad because <laughs> the iPhone runs out of battery so fast, you can't make it through two segments or like an entire show. So I, I had to, they sent me the iPad, which is terrific. So it's an iPad and it's TV lights. And then actually what's been great this year is I have another iPhone that I use for a Zoom return so I can see the people on the show which really helps because I know when I'm off camera and I can like wave to the producer and say, I have a point or something like that because this whole remote is, I mean, as you all know, when you're in four different States and you're trying to do a show, it's hard to have that human interaction and you don't, you talk over each other right naturally. But then I have another phone that has my IFB plugged into it in my pocket and that's how I can hear Bristol and, and the other people who are on the show. So it's an iPad, two iPhones, and it's amazing. Knock on wood, it usually works. <laughs> TV magic, man. Yeah. Hopefully, it, we had Tom Hart here on here whose power completely went out and fire alarm went off in the middle of the game. <laughs> so oh, that's, oh, that, that takes the cake right there. Yeah. Uh, of all, despite being like um, on the the mentions on Twitter and you being blamed for where every person is seated <laughs> right now, what's been the hardest part of covering it? Uh, gosh, that's a good question. I think the the hardest part is the access. I mean, you know, the committee members are they're on lockdown. They're you know they're extremely difficult to to talk to and like I said I don't want to put them in a compromising position ever and um just just the general access of it and trying to take people behind the scenes it's not a transparent process mm -hmm. it's not it is absolutely not and you know I have have tried to push and ask for it to be a more transparent process because people don't trust what they can't see I think that's just a general it's just a general thing. So, you know, it, I think most of us on here have gone through the mock selection. So, yeah. so you, by doing that, you understand it. I wished that the general fan could go through that because I think it explains a lot. Like you go into that room, you sit down in the chair, having an idea of what you think. And then as you listen to the conversation, your opinion can change. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Everybody brings great points. They're smart. People don't understand how it's voted in, in pods. Like you're talking about A&M, Iowa State, Florida, Georgia, and Cincinnati. They're in a group together. Like people don't even under, understand that, that they're on a computer screen together, the way they vote on those teams, right? So I think just the transparency and trying to explain to people how it works without the CFP really explaining to people behind the scenes is one of the hardest things. Yeah, I was fascinated by the process and just the amount of data and information they have at their fingertips and the way they can cross compare. Um, I thought I thought was fascinating. And then you do realize a little bit when your feet are to the fire, how difficult it is to actually make some of those decisions. But I will say, I feel like the, the committee has gotten off easy in the end in previous years, like things have kind of played out the way um, the way that caused for like least resistance and arguments amongst fans. I like chaos. Before we let you go, what is the most chaotic scenario in this final weekend before the rankings come out on Sunday that you can imagine that would just create 
total chaos for the committee and make their jobs really difficult. I love them all, but I want their jobs to be hard this year. <laughs> total, total chaos. Um, okay, so Clemson loses. Ohio State loses to Northwestern. A&M loses to Tennessee. I mean, you can make Bama lose, but they're still in. <clears throat> so you have Alabama and Notre Dame because they both won. Then what do you do? Because <laughs> Clemson's out with two losses. Ohio State lost to Northwestern. Does Northwestern even get a, a whiff of consideration? Probably not. Probably not. A&M lost. So you got Iowa State. Okay. Um, then what? Is Florida in? No. I don't know. <laughs> Dabo, maybe yeah, Dabo's happy. That's did, what I did want. Did Cincinnati beat Tulsa <laughs> in this scenario? Oh, yeah. There you go. How about Cincy? There you go. Well, if you want chaos, no, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I crazy. Well, fun. I don't, I don't know if any of that's going to happen. Hopefully we get some kind of shakeup this weekend to keep things interesting. Um, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to see the top four. This is a year unlike any other and for the committee as well. So um, their jobs aren't easy. That makes your job a little harder too, Heather. So we appreciate you coming on and explaining everything to us and telling us about how you got this job. I hope there aren't kids knocking on the door right now for their mom, <laughs> but we really appreciate you taking the time and all the hard work that you do for the playoff committee and for ESPN. You're the hey, best. Back at you. Thank you all for having me on. Thank you guys for listening to the Sideline Pass podcast. Don't forget to download, rate, and review, and we will see you next week.